Ephraim Deorian. <coughs> Dear Lord. There's some lungs. That was impressive. Live from the Mundangerous Continental Shelf in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 240 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're plumbing the depths to discuss adventuring beneath the sea. But first, the party gets an invitation they can't refuse in the Gates of Morning campaign. And later, the siren song lures enemies to their deaths in the Character Creation Forge. And Total Party Thrill is brought to you this week by our friends at Elderwood Academy. Elderwood Academy are artisans who craft amazing gaming products, including Ishin, dice towers, dice trays, deck deck boxes, dice boxes, dice, and more. Oh, I tripped over that one. <laughs> well, all of the products are crafted to look just like spellbooks, scroll cases, codices, and other awesome fantasy gear that we love. You know, if you put it on the ground, you can trip over it too. Mm. I got another compliment on my scroll rolling tray, Ishin. Uh. From whom? Uh, I was posting a dice pick, and someone was like, oh my god, I love the scroll rolling tray. Like, you have one, I love it. My favorite part about it is that it comes apart. Uh-huh. Like, like so it's not one of those where, like, it folds up and then you snap together the sides or whatever. It, like, actually comes apart so that it's easier to pack away and actually take with you places. Oh, yeah, it fits nicely in the backpack. It's, like, maybe the size of, like, a pencil pouch. Right, and it's, like cool and magnetic mm-hmm. and it fits in like it's like briefcase shaped is, is what i appreciate about <laughs> it is it like it fits in my briefcase without making it dumb oh oh i see it fits in your briefcase right because of its shape it is not shaped like a briefcase because no. i was confused for a second no 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 no, no. i was like it's just like a tiny briefcase no because it, it rolls up into like a, you know the shape of a scroll and then it right. fits in this little like velvety bag so it just fits in the bottom of my briefcase just, just fine. Just velvety, chocolatey goodness in mm-hmm. that bag. That's right. <laughs> All right. So you can check out the scroll rolling tray and many more products at elderwoodacademy.com slash don't split. Uh, so some kind of lousy news for the tabletop role-playing game industry uh, a couple weeks ago that we have forgotten to talk about in this section. <laughs> uh, Fantasy Flight Games has announced that they are shuttering their RPG division. We had heard not too long ago that they were ending some of their lines, Wrath and Glory. Um, well, they had lost the 40K license, and then they had uh, let go of like a bunch of their staff on the RPG lines, um, including like some people that we knew who were friends of the show, um, which is awful. Like Now they're looking for work. Um, but then finally the word has come down that they're going to shutter the whole line. Uh, they will stop producing RPGs. Yeah, so no Genesis, no Edge of the Empire. Uh, obviously, the uh, Dark Heresy 2nd Edition was already defunct. Um, I don't know. I guess the only good thing I would say is if you can find the books now, you should buy them now. Yeah, it's it, so they had just re- just announced like the Genesis community forge or whatever it's called that was basically the equivalent of the dms guild for genesis products um i I don't know what the state of that is uh it just it sucks because ffg was known for making very high quality high production value products yeah and now a premium publisher has exited the market i always really loved their products i always really loved looking they like actually like looking and holding looking at and holding a book they feel um, like they're worth the money. Like they physically th- feel good. They yes, they actually do. Like touching the paper, um, reading reading the books. Like even if you didn't love a game, like we weren't like, oh my god, let's play a ton of Genesis. But we played a lot of Dark Heresy Second Edition, right? And even with some of the like, I don't know design issues, they were among some of the sort of like best designed big league games on the market and now now you're just you just have fewer options out there and that sucks yeah and like um so many of those artists that they were using and things like that are now going to be impacted like that's that's one less line of games that's available for art um 
which they always did a great job of getting really great pieces. So I, I'm very disappointed by this. Um, thanks a lot to the French private equity ghouls who have stripped a gaming company that nobody needed destroyed. Yay. Anyway, we ho- here's hoping Fantasy Flight, um, I don't know, recovers a bit. Obviously, they have other product lines that are not uh, RPGs, and you know they do a good job with their board games, etc. Yeah. All right, so where are we in the Gates of Morning campaign? So the Gates of Morning campaign is our 5th edition D&D game set in Eberron, a sequel of sorts to the original Morning Glory campaign. And in central Karnath, in the insular city of Vedikir, the party is chasing a killer. Yeah, so we tracked an undead abomination to a warehouse, we killed it, uh, we ran away back to our hideout at the Marrow's Mead, a, a local tavern, um, and as we try to figure out what to do next, um, we discovered uh, Darian Ephraim's secret identity, our, our friend, our commander in the war, secret identity in a hidden compartment in his room, which we maybe broke into in the middle of the night. Yep, he is a scion of House Orion, Ephraim de Orion. Uh, you also now know that one of the Ondarians who is missing, uh, Corporal Sien, was somehow turned into that undead abomination that you destroyed, but you burned the body to, to make sure that she couldn't be resurrected into some other type of horrible ghoul in the future. Now, in the morning, though, the Carnathian specter Sigor, the one who first informed them that Ephraim was dead in the first place, arrives at the inn and informs them that House Davis wants to have a meeting. Of course, everyone's like, what the heck is House Davis? Yeah, I've never heard of House Davis. Well, it turns out they're an upstart family from the Lazar Principalities that have adopted the title of a noble house, and they have plenty of money. So here in Vedicir, what House Davis wants, House Davis gets. And so Sigor's just like, um, they're going to come send a coach for you, and you're going to go talk to them because that's what happens. And I'm sorry, and it was nice knowing you. So a carriage does show up, and it takes them to the northern part of town, a neighborhood of rich estates on high hills. And behind fine, wrought iron gates, they are ushered into a spacious foyer and a well-appointed waiting room. Yeah, and then a rotund, jovial man enters and identifies himself as Taggart, the head of House Davis. And he does not seem to know or care why we're here in his in his rotunda. Yeah, like, he's... he's really finely dressed uh but he seems to be sort of like carefree uh it's sort of weird that someone who ostensibly has so much power and so much money is like showing up to talk to you who are sort of a ragtag bunch of adventurers from out of town but then as you're all seated and you know he doesn't really seem to know what's going on a side door opens and a young half elven girl enters the room carrying a tray of cakes and tea and Taggart just digs right in, starts uh, eating those teen cakes, and then introduces the young girl as his daughter, Lauren Davis. So she sits quietly, then reaches into her pocket and produces a small vial of the same powder that the party has been following. She says, it's most interesting what you have brought me. And then Lenore quickly checks her own pockets and realizes that all of the powder, the uh, necrotically infused uh, dark black powder that was on Ephraim's corpse that the party had uh, collected is gone. And as uh, Taggart continues to prattle on, seemingly completely oblivious to the conversation that's happening right in front of him, the young girl continues to speak. And she says, you know, you've all died. What was it like? I think that it would be very peaceful. And after a polite and confusing and unnerving chat, the party leaves without their powder. So Shane, for people who may not necessarily remember the name Lauren Davis, did the did the players at the table remember the name Lauren Davis? Oh yeah, Lauren Davis is an anagram for Arandis Vole, the head of the House of Vole and a 3,000-year-old lich, and the last bearer of the Mark of Death. Yeah, uh, you ran into her, or I guess will run into her in the future, at least the Morning Glory, the original Morning Glory party will, mm-hmm. uh, and has a bit of difficulty with her. Uh-huh, and, uh, and that, that black powder in that vial certainly shows up a bit later as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, 
she i don't know are we doing spoilers for the old campaign i, I guess I that's fine right it's it's over 100 episodes ago <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh yeah she uses that to kill uh cardinal crozen um of the silver flame <laughs> yeah it, she uses it to prevent us from speaking with dead with his body yeah which you guys haven't tried yet but it certainly would have prevented you from speaking with dead or resurrecting ephraim as well i don't think we tried because i don't think we had the ability you did not Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and we'll find out what happens next, next week. All right, so this week, Ishin, we are talking about underwater adventures. I almost feel like it's a little bit sacrilegious to uh, talk about this without, like, dialing in Rich Howard. <laughs> oh, I know. I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure he's been waiting all week to hear this episode, though. Um, you're you're welcome. Uh, Rich, of course, is one of the creators of Descent into Midnight, uh, which is, the Kickstarter is available right now, an undersea, powered by the Apocalypse Engine type game, which you've heard us talk about before, and actually is a really good resource for thinking about what your underwater communities uh, and adventures will actually look like. So, you know, you can always check that out uh, in tandem with this episode. Yeah. Um, but I think... In adventure stories, the ocean depths are always, like, the last frontier, right? Like, they're, like, the last undiscovered, undisturbed, purely natural place left on the planet. Right. Like, you can either... To get further away, you have to either go to space or other planes of existence. Technically right? not on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exa- exactly. Right. So it is this evocative and alien landscape with plenty of room for improvisation because even in real life most of the deep sea is kind of unknown to us, right? Like, you know, if you put a monastery at the top of Mount Everest in your game, that obviously isn't real life because we have Google satellite images of the top of Mount Everest and there's no monastery there. Right, but if you put a monastery in the lost city of Atlantis deep under the ocean waves, well, who can know? It's a lost city and we haven't been down there to see the entire depths. It's true. I mean, I do like that you can play a like real life modern game, like a Knights Black Agents game, and you could have a whole like undersea world, which doesn't necessarily break verisimilitude. Because like, why would vampires have not built an undersea city? Yeah, and it's it's a conspiracy game, so like obviously the veil out for that was major, but like of course they had to keep it hidden. <laughs> right. We're destroying also, the surface. They don't want our problems. Also, we don't uh, we don't breathe. And do you know how much blood a whale has? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but in most RPGs, staying underwater for any length of time results in a quick and nasty death. Of course, even when you're down there, it's difficult to maneuver, it's tough to fight. Sometimes you can't even see anything because, I don't know if you know this, but light doesn't penetrate all that far down into the ocean. So today we're going to talk about how you make adventuring underwater more fun than it is frustrating. So first of all, your single best resource is going to be real life because ocean biodiversity is bizarre, strange, beautiful inspiring like spend some time on wikipedia for like bizarre ocean life and Mm -hmm. you'll have the nightmare fuel and or like the 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 beautiful coral reef that you're looking for for inspiration right go watch blue planet right and (laughs) if if nothing else you've gotten to see blue planet (laughs) or go play blue planet another game about (laughs) like underwater adventuring (laughs) very true all right so whether you are going to venture uh, underwater to continue your your adventures or you're going to run a game underwater, I think the first question you want to ask is why is the party here underwater in the first place? And there, there are a couple of reasons. The first one is just short-term exploration. Um, you're going to be underwater for a session, you know, or just a couple sessions. You're here to do one thing. So think about what is the goal? Um, what is it that the party needs to accomplish before they can leave? Because really the, the thing they're trying to do is stay underwater for as short a time as possible. In terms of preparation, the the party as a party member, you should try to figure out how long you expect to be down there. Like if it's just a quick fetch quest, maybe it's possible that that, you know, this is just a submerged room in a dungeon and all you have to do is keep holding your breath, diving down to find something and then surfacing again, right? You're it's the shortest possible time that you could be dealing uh, with an adventure underwater. Yeah. Um, if it's anything longer than that, then you need to start thinking about kind of short term survival concerns, right? So breathing. Uh, obviously a big one for most people, um, but also like light sources. How are you going to be able to see? Um, are you able to light lights down there or might something else be attracted to your light? 
Are my torches not going to work? The torch is definitely not going to work, but your oh, flashlight man. might. Might? Uh, unless the pressure is too high, then your flashlight could break. It also could crush your lungs, depending on how deep you're going. And then think about combat. Are you going to get into a fight down there? I mean, if this is like a one-session thing, you're probably going to get into a fight down there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're usually at disadvantage against aquatic creatures. I mean, that's probably the point of this encounter in the first place is to like, you know, put you on your back foot um, while you're trying to like hack at a crocodile that you can, can't even really see, but it's dragging you underwater. Yeah, nobody's scared of a great white shark, uh, you know, on the boardwalk. On land. <laughs> if this is going to be more of a long-term adventure, then survival is probably going to be handled by either your backstory, something that you have from that, or a MacGuffin. Um, you know, and then the question becomes, what do you do if it fails? So, like, what if you have magic that runs out, or you have a deep-sea submersible and there is a crack? Um, you know, things like that. Yeah, and I would say that if if you're doing, you know, like a, an entire arc underwater uh, in your campaign, there probably will be at least one session or at least one time when suddenly the conveyance or the, the technology that you're using to stay down there is going to fail. Like that, that almost definitely is some sort of trope that probably should happen at some point. Mm-hmm. So you'll also need to prepare for different kinds of underwater environments rather than just, hey, I need to hold my breath in like this sort of still pool of water. So there could be sea caves where you don't necessarily know where you're going or there are things like hiding in the walls or, you know, eels or, or crabs or other creatures are just sort of waiting for you. You could have these deep sea vents, which are very hot. You're dealing with nearly boiling or actually boiling water coming out of the ocean floor. Uh, you might have open ocean. Uh, which might, for you, be the equivalent of a desert, right? There's nothing there. There's no food. You can't drink the water. Like you are at, you're easily lost and disoriented. Like that could easily be like a desert scenario if it's just the middle of the water column. And then there are the deep sea trenches where you've got to deal with extreme pressures, no light, and horrible crazy creatures down there. Plus, you know, all the things people stick down there to be forgotten. Mm-hmm. You'll also need to think about how are you communicating? I mean, even just in simple ways, like how are you speaking and do your words actually come out uh, while you're down there? Um, But also like the understanding of the history and society and the customs of the undersea creatures that you expect that you're going to run into. And and this is sort of like a a nature versus history uh, debate. Like if it's just an actual like real world ocean, then you probably want you know, nature skills, and you want to understand where you are in the water column, like you said, Shane, you know, and what what kind of geography you're going to read, uh, are you going to be dealing with? If it is more of a fantasy setting, though, then I want to know what are the nations of the merfolk down there? (laughs) Yeah, like, tell me the history of the Sahagan reefs. Right. Uh, Do they hate us? Do we hate them? What do they think of our ships? Right. Um, And then the question, of course, is how many resources are you devoting to any given challenge? It might be difficult to find more resources when you're down there. Everything that you have available might have been brought by you. So how are you going to use those to solve your challenges? And and when are you going to spend them versus conserve them? Right. I mean, especially in like a more realistic um, game, if you're bringing batteries to power your underwater torches, how many batteries do you bring? What happens when you run out of those batteries? Right. Um, And even sort of like in a meta perspective, I think if if let's say a typical campaign has three arcs and your middle arc is, uh, hey, we need to go find the Tablet of Resurrection in Atlantis. But the other two arcs are we're finding two different tablets on like a, a mountain and then in a forest. Do you do you like make selections in your character build or the points that you're spending to survive underwater, knowing that once this arc is done, those are going to be less useful? Or or do you not and then just sort of like suffer through and, and hope that your more general abilities get you through it? I mean, th- these are all questions like for your party and your GM. I mean, I'll tell you what I do. I spend zero resources on underwater adventuring because if the GM puts me in a place where I'm just going to die, the story ends. So (laughs) I dare you to kill me for not spending points on water breathing. You hold the story hostage. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But do you then invest in uh, nets and tridents? And and those abilities, you forego your greatsword, for example, because your greatsword is mostly garbage underwater. 
Mm, Except I have a I have a, a greatsword with fins, so it's fine. <laughs> yeah, I have a stabbing greatsword. <laughs> and then, of course, you could be playing an underwater game that is that the entire the entire game is underwater. The full setting is underwater. This is Descending to Midnight. This is Blue Planet. This is any sort of like uh, Aquaman, Atlantean game. You're you're just underwater all the time. Right. Survival yeah. isn't an issue because everyone lives underwater. It, like you're probably an aquatic race to begin with. Right. Yeah. The the survival threats are the the normal th- survival threats. Things that will eat you. <laughs> you right. Know, not <laughs> not you know the pressure of the depths or uh lack of light or lack of breathing right i mean my snork game you know the most important thing is aquatic gargamel coming to to Mm -hmm. eat you yeah exactly Mm -hmm. although my favorite thing actually about like normal aquatic settings is uh hey up on the surface you have to deal with the tarasque down here (laughs) there are like eleven thousand giant behemoths that can eat an entire city (laughs) (laughs) it's just another tuesday right um, the flip side is if you are basing your setting underwater, then your um, venturing to the surface becomes sort of the equivalent of an underwater adventure, right? That's where you are the fish out of water, quite literally. Yeah, like can you breathe air is an important consideration. I'm always a lungfish, baby. <laughs> I'm always a monkfish. Uh, un unarmed attacks always <laughs> <laughs> diamond soul just just fins all right so think about like if the full setting is underwater think about how the nature of underwater life is going to affect the story and this society like take a little time to sort of invest in the verisimilitude of this right if if uh your adventure like your entire campaign is underwater then it has to be taking place in either a fantasy setting or some sort of sci-fi setting because in the real world like those things just don't exist so Mm -hmm. you can have buildings that are much taller uh because people can just swim up to you know the 85th tower or the 115th floor right Mm -hmm. Uh, creatures can be much larger or they can have much lower structural integrity or both you can have creatures that would fall apart if uh, they had to deal with gravity by themselves but they can just be these you know gossamer wingspans that float through the city yeah um you can also think like culturally like is it the shallows or the depths that become the like the the place where all of the rich people want you know mm-hmm. like it, it, on the surface of course like the penthouse right the top floor is the most desirable but maybe it's the bottom that's most interesting if you live in a in a society that has that kind of mobility and the top is the like the closer to the light is where all the food is and where all the people are and if you want that like kind of exclusivity you have to go into the depths Right. Down here, well, it's all the shipwrecks. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, society's probably adapted for low light or maybe no light conditions. And that might just be that, you know, it's always pitch black and everyone has some sort of version of blindsight. Maybe there's bioluminescence. Um, or maybe it's just totally hand-waved, right? Like everyone can see everything. I think like the think the Aquaman movie, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone for some, there's just sort of ambient light everywhere at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, of course. Why not? Otherwise, the cameras don't work. Right. <laughs> I wish the whole thing was just shot in infrared. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's just heat signatures. That makes sense. Um, work in some aquatic replacements for real-world technology. What What do people write on? What? Are, there's no paper, or at least there's no like paper as we think of it. You don't have candles or torches. Do electronics work? Is there some sort of water-hardened electronics, or is it crystal-based technology or psionic or whatever? Right. Um, And then what does it look like in society when everyone and everything can effectively fly? You know, you have three dimensions of movement that are just inherent to everybody in your setting. Right, all the time. And I like that you bring up, you know, which part of society is rich and which side is poor. Like, it's not it's not just that this inverse so many of our assumptions or just scrambles so many of our assumptions about like what is what is good and and what is bad um you know what is good design and and what is bad design when 
there's a lot more freedom of movement. Um, it's much easier to travel from place to place because, you know, a, a beeline along the ocean floor is not always the fastest way to get there. Sometimes it's you just float up a little bit and then cross over as the quote unquote crow flies. Yeah, like you, you catch the current, right? Right. Like you have to be aware of where like thermal currents and where like the regular like tides and sea currents are, are sort of like going in order to kind of maximize your efficiency. Right. And things are just always much more in flux underwater because you have water moving and, and water is, you know, it, it's much heavier than, than air. So even a place that's left undisturbed is getting buried in sediment or it's being pushed around or or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that do to a, a society's psyche when they feel like there isn't really such a thing as long term permanent stability? Right. All right. So. Challenges for being underwater. Let's assume that this this isn't being hand-waved. The first one, of course, is survival. And the most important one, if you're a surface dweller, is air. Because most air-breathing creatures can only last a few minutes. I think at the most you get, you know, creatures that can hold their breath for an hour or a few hours. But that's not even going to be one session. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you might need, like, scuba gear or a water-breathing spell or, like, a force bubble around your head. Right. Uh, maybe it's a like hard sigh injected oxygen directly into your bloodstream. Oh. But remember that any kind of external breathing technology can fail. And consider that if it does, you may have no backup because you're far away from your home base and you'll have no way to keep from dying. So GMs, you, if it does fail, does that mean that this character just dies? And how does that affect your story? Right. Um, of course, players who like to have backup plans, like to have contingencies, may be reluctant to go underwater in the first place if there aren't um, at least a couple fail-safes for these sort of basic breathing. Yeah, I think our group sort of goes in one extreme or the other, just sort of depending on how we're feeling in the moment. It's either, oh, there is absolutely no way we would go underwater if we don't have three backups for you know our technology. Like we have a breathing spell, but then we also have like a, a gillyweed, okay? And then we've got like a an Autolux resilience sphere. But then some days we're just like, whatever, we'll figure it out. Just jump yeah. in the water. <laughs> just get wet. <laughs> So if the party has warning about where they're going to go and what they're going to do, they can research and prep. And this gives them an opportunity to basically convey what they're what is important to them and what they're worried about and then mine those fears for, for use in the game. Right. Uh, temperature is also a concern underwater. Um, there's always the question of how deep are you going to go. Um, at high depth, it doesn't... I mean naturally right cannot get colder than freezing uh, or else it ceases to be water um so it usually doesn't get too much below freezing um wherever you go in the ocean but you do have to deal with extreme heat when you have thermal vents or like underwater volcanoes things like that which can be equally destructive on the hot end oh underwater volcano that will definitely show up uh, i mean I got like, cold resistance i got bludgeoning resistance cool cool <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just uh, you know, take a take a few hour tour through like Subnautica, right? And just look at all like the the biomes and biodiversity that they that you deal with in that game. Um, there's literally a lava castle. So, like temperature pressure usually only really comes into play if it's going to be interesting in the game. I mean, re- like realistically, pressures at the bottom of like the Maranis Trench make all adventuring impossible. So it usually gets hand waved. You know, oh, we're going to the deepest part of the ocean. Okay, you're crushed into paste i guess right yeah (laughs) or we'll pretend that that doesn't happen right so in order to do that in like a a hard science setting you need some type of submersible that has obviously like pretty strong structural integrity and is therefore very prone to problems and quick fixes and, and patching things in a hurry because uh you know a small crack in the glass could quickly become a a tpk yeah, I mean, if your entire party is in some sort of submersible, there should definitely be a moment where they're very worried about the entire thing being, like, crushed, just, like, smushed like a like a 
balloon again whatever <laughs> so have you have you ever seen the show river monsters i think it's Mm-mm. on like discovery so it's it's about a fisherman an angler who goes around the world investigating these myths of like monsters that supposedly live in like rivers and, and different like kind of you know uh coastal communities piranhas um, loch ness etc sure yeah exactly and so like you know there'll be some legend that's been reported about something that happened to a person he tries to dig into what happened and then looking at the local like you know, wildlife, he tries to figure out what it could have been. Usually it's some type of extreme thing, right? Like a, a sturgeon that grew to double its size somehow, mm-hmm. right? Um, things like that. But like there was one episode where he it's literally... The, it's, not a, it's not subject to the square cube law, so... <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so he literally went in a deep sea submersible down to like... I don't know, some absurd, like a mile under, right? Oh, like, it, an, like an Alvin yeah. submersible. Crazy, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, and it was like it was the most nervous episode I've ever seen of this stuff. And like usually he's like you know on a boat or whatever, like just spends a lot of time reeling in a reel. But like this was like they wanted to see the creatures that came, and they went down with like a pig carcass um, to bait them. And it was like he wanted to see what these deep sea sharks were to see if they were potentially like could have been the cause of like a coastal attack. And the creatures that came out for this pig carcass were nightmare fuel Mm -hmm, (laughs) and -hmm. then the whole episode is just eerily silent right because there's no sound down there either because of the pressure so like it's just him and this guy in the submersible this two-man submersible and like a bunch of gopros and he's just like slowly cracking up as he's like watching these terrifying things and then like the light shuts off and it's like oh my god (laughs) right they don't adhere to what we think of are the rules for living creatures right like it doesn't matter if you can see through their skin because nothing is seeing. But once, as soon as you turn a light on, you're like, oh, my God. Yeah. And, and, and like they're attracted to the light as well. Right. So that, that naturally draws them to you. It, it was it was a very interesting episode. Um, but anyway, like th- these are the types of concerns that you have when you, <laughs> when you introduce submersibles. It's not always what you can see. Sometimes it's what you know is out there that you can't yet see. Well, I think it's important, like speaking of like going down in in a submersible, even if you don't have a a vehicle involved, when you're introducing your party to the ocean, like beneath the waves, make sure that you are making that transition clear, right? On the mechanical side, the first encounter that you have down there or the first like um, first few minutes basically under the water are going to establish the rules uh, for, for the setting, right? Like how cold is it? Um, what is movement like? What is combat like? Mm-hmm. Um, like what what is the DC for the swim check or whatever, right? Um, make sure that you make make sure you make the expectations and the rules clear and then keep them consistent because um, this is setting the tone for the, all of these future encounters and is tipping the party off to problems that they may not have, may not have already foreseen. right. But also like set set the tone for what it's like under the water right so hey there's a storm on the ship we fall into the water it's actually calm down here the storm doesn't reach below the surface of the the ocean right but then as we descend further and further here's how the light changes here's how the creatures change uh here is a terrifying nightmare of a monster that's actually really friendly actually it just looks terrifying right apparently. <laughs> <laughs> this is the equivalent of a catfish right. it's just 17 <laughs> times our size right oh and that one with the giant teeth those are actually used for eating people so yeah <laughs> yeah right those are actually what they look like <laughs> <laughs> all right so let's talk about some encounters you might have uh, beneath the water okay so we we've already been talking a little bit about leviathans uh, so anything of that sort, right? Whales, giant squid, dire aquatic versions of anything, sharks, whatever. I like the idea. Like if you can pull this off in your game, this is great. If these are things are first encountered while the party is still above water, because you just see bits of it. You see the thing that's lashing out to attack you. You see like one giant saucer eye, but you don't really know what this thing looks like unless it drags you underneath and kills you. Right. But underwater, you can see the whole thing. You can see what it looks like. You can see how large it actually is and how many tentacles it has. Right. So in this instance, the party is typically just a nuisance. I mean, the the thing is so big that it could just crush or swallow them if it got like a hand or a, you know, a beak on them. So what is the goal in this encounter? Are they trying to kill this thing eventually, wearing it down or figuring out whatever MacGuffin it takes to kill it? Are they trying to hurt it to get it to move in a direction or away from something? Or do they are they just trying to escape it with their lives? Uh, there's another option, Ishan. 
What if they're trying to enter it? <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you got to get that treasure out of the belly of the whale. <laughs> you know, that's what enter the dragon uh, means, really. Oh, it was Bruce Lee oh, trying to get inside a dragon's belly. You know I'm not big on kung fu movies, but I would be if I had known that that was the goal of Enter the Dragon. <laughs> I mean, Pinocchio is always a great touchstone for nightmare fuel. So many terrible, <laughs> awful things happen in that show. Um, of course, it is not just large things that might eat you. It is also terrifying swarms of tiny things that might eat you. Uh, you know, many small creatures are more difficult to attack or destroy underwater. You can't just use fire, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is everything from like piranhas to microbes, right? And like microbiology that might just like cling to you casually and then slowly infect you or, or make you ill. Yeah. I mean, heck, it could be a pot of 30 whales, you know, out in the deep sea. So I think in general, these swarms tend to be like extremely mobile. Uh, they'll probably offer, operate in perfect unison, almost like a hive mind. Or, you know, they might actually just be a hive mind. And that means that they can easily surround your typical surface dweller PC. They can attack from all sides, including above and below. So, you know, make it clear that the, the party needs to be on the lookout for those avenues of attack as well. They need to defend from all sides at all times. Yeah, and then also keep in mind they might not actually be attacking right? Like an algal bloom or a swarm of jellyfish might not be actively attacking you. It's that they are more of an environmental hazard, right? The algae is sucking the oxygen out of the water that you need to breathe. The jellyfish are floating through and their tentacles, if they touch you, will sting you and kill you. Yeah. They're, they're just clogging your scuba gear with, you know, hundreds of tiny jellyfish. With gross. We talked about this a bit already, but beneath the sea, you meet creatures with alien physiology. So they might be horrifying to look at. How how do they react to you? Do they think you look terrifying and disgusting? And then how do they react to your reaction to them when you are horrified by them? Yeah, especially for sentient creatures. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, right. Like, what does the Sahagan think you look like? And what does the Sahagan, like, how are they taking it really personally when you cringe? <laughs> yeah. Because that's the, inappropriate. What do the deep ones think? Yeah. <laughs> Um, keep in mind, like ocean creatures often have no eyes or alternative senses. They might have like, you know, electromagnetic sensory instead of like senses of smell or taste or sight. Mm -hmm. uh, in a 3D world, they don't have to have bilateral symmetry. You know, they may not have one eye on either side of their head. They might not have two sides. They might have seven. Mm-hmm. Under here, uh, all the creatures are just uh, varying die sizes. Yeah, they're all heptahedrons. <laughs> right. It's uh, it's the Modron kingdom is underwater. It never rusts. <laughs> None of us like the D10s. <laughs> hey, Discord shout out. I don't think a heptahedron is a, is a uh, perfect decosahedron either. I, I, I don't think it is. So remember when you're running or, or if you are just adventuring under the water, the creatures that you're meeting probably appear this way because that makes them better adapted to this specific environment. So think about what benefits they have that the party doesn't, right? 360 vision is maybe creepy because the thing has eyes all around its like midline ridge, but that does mean that you can't surprise it. And then depending on the disposition of the creature, will they help the party or will they take advantage of the, you know, inherent adaptations that they have uh, in order to you know, eat or punish or mock the party. Yeah, these things just have four useless flagella <laughs> that just <laughs> flail uselessly. Exactly. <laughs> they're they're basically like, ugh, they have no motility. They're, all, they're just all, floating along like jellyfish. All of their sensory organs are concentrated on one end. <laughs> <laughs> and they need light. <laughs> Idiots. Their sense of smell is awful. <laughs> For one, they can't even take water into their into their smell organ. I keep uh, I kept trying to uh, feed it and help it breathe, but it just exploded. Uh -huh. <laughs> Whoops! <laughs> and then, of course, it's a pretty common trope. But down in the deep, deep dark, there are alien intelligences. 
These might be actual real aliens who, I guess, for some reason, well, I mean, no, most of the surface of the earth is, is water, right? So if they crash landed on the planet, they probably did land in an ocean. Yeah, but uh, this always has that problem of uh, if you crash landed on a planet and uh, and you had gotten there via space, which has zero pressure, <laughs> like how did you possibly keep your technology intact under the ocean depths? Force fields. I got lots of force fields. Okay, all right. Yeah, right, fair it's enough. a Kryptonian crystal ship. You've got me there. <laughs> um, or, of course, these could just be creatures of madness. Cthulhu lives in the ocean. Why? Because I guess Cthulhu's just more comfortable there. Everybody looks uh, looks like Cthulhu. Yeah, I mean, when you've got the tentacles, you know, might as well lean into where tentacles belong. Right. I mean, depending on your setting, maybe the ocean depths and creatures there look horrifying because Cthulhu lives there. Right. Or, you know, because of the proximity to Kyber or, you know, whatever the equivalent is in your setting. Right. That means they're they're often inscrutable or maybe they're horrifying not necessarily because they're evil, but because they are just indifferent to you or think completely differently. Think the Dalkir, but underwater. Actually, that's even more terrifying now that I think about it. Yeah, underwater I mean, Dalkir. I, but even in like a even like a, a near Earth setting, right? Like they might not care about what you're doing on the surface. Like the reason that you're down here, that you've come to them, might have zero meaning to them on account of humanity is busy destroying the surface like the oceans are the cleanest and safest place to be and the further down you go the the less the feeling of human intervention like that's why i'm here i'm not helping you you're just destroying the planet and i'll be here long after you're gone yeah i'm letting you destroy the parts of this planet that don't matter right so yeah, consider, you know, why is this alien intelligence down here? What do they want if they even want a thing? And then what do they want from you? And maybe they don't want anything at first, but you want something from them, whether it's for them to go away or to destroy them or their help. So then they are going to want something in return. Yeah. Uh, it's your soul. It's your soul. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. They my Our force fields are powered by human souls. Huh. Interesting. How did yeah. you develop them before you found humanity? Uh, we had to retrofit once we got here. Okay. Yeah. All right. So power groups you might meet below, beneath the oceans. First ones heading down, seafarers and pirates often control access to and from the surface. So you might need to bargain your way past them. Mm -hmm. uh, and the more technologically advanced, the more they might also control air, areas of like the shallows or, or actual underwater areas as well. Um, but often those are controlled by aquatic civilizations like Atlantis or Merfolk or Sahagan or the other underwater race. Aventi? Darfelin. Yeah, Aventi. Darfelin control nothing. <laughs> they don't even <laughs> control their own lives. So these civilizations are pro probably embroiled in their own conflicts that seem much more important to them than your petty squabbles. So as outsiders, you can inflame these tensions or maybe you can broker peace in some way. Uh, and this is where you get to have fun with, you know, all the different technologies and goals and morals that these societies have that might differ from, um, you know, nations on the surface. Consider that long range travel is going to be much easier. Like if you build any sort of conveyance, it automatically flies. So like from the beginning of civilization, these um, societies have basically had long range air travel. Mm -hmm. So intercultural trade and diplomacy is probably going to be much more common. Uh, there also might be creatures of myth, uh, as you mentioned under there. So things like sea hags or water elementals, right? They probably have a baseline of personal power to exist in the deep sea, um, but then they might be amassing more power through like the minions and political control. And then aboliths usually live under the water. They're long-lived, or I think maybe immortal in some settings, evil yeah. schemers who are just there to screw things up yeah and, and make things sludgy mm, sludgy and then of course deities sometimes the aforementioned cthulhu but then also sea and storm gods think about eberron's the devourer uh, forgotten realms has deep sashalas and of course in the real world we've got poseidon just hanging out down there you know screwing things up uh occasionally destroying entire nations on the surface just because he can just because uh they are often uh, sea deities seen as capricious, uh, often because the sea is unpredictable and, and the weather above it is often difficult. Um, but that might just be the projection of the surface dwellers interacting with them mm -hmm. rather than their own 
inherent nature. So in combat down there, clumsy swimmers are going to have difficulty maneuvering in combat. So you're at a severe disadvantage if you are not native to the water. So if you're building an encounter, make sure you're factoring this into the challenge uh, that you're expecting to, to give to the party. Yep, many weapons will be less effective or completely useless. So like you said, a great sword, you know, anything you have to slash is just going to be more difficult underwater, but something you stab like a spear is probably going to work better. Um, verbal components for spells might simply be impossible. Fire either doesn't work at all or deals less damage. In 5e, everything that is submerged is resistant to fire damage. So factor this into your spell selection and the protections that you choose. Often you're dealing with wide open spaces, so ranged attacks are probably going to be more useful. It's easier to kite. It's easy to get outflanked or to be outmaneuvered by these aquatic creatures if uh, they can move unimpeded through the water and you are still trying to make athletics checks to swim. Right. And then, of course, your enemies, being as they are probably better adapted than you, can often just escape without difficulty. When they disengage, like they disengage with the full advantage of of the environment around them. Right. And then they just swim away and it's, you know, if you just swim up, that's open ocean for two miles. Right. Remember that 3d combat is going to make it a lot harder to lock other creatures down or to be locked down yourself. So your attacks attacks can come from anywhere. You are going to want to probably try to choose your battle locations depending on your strengths and weaknesses. So if you're from the surface an enclosed space might actually be better Uh, Because you are less maneuverable, so you can like push off of rocks, um, you know, or uh, prevent creatures that can uh, swim very quickly from being able to use that to their advantage. Yeah, and then if you're trying to represent this in a game using like a a map and minis or a battle grid, something like that, like you need to think about how you're going to track like relative height. Um, you, You probably just want to keep it in like thinking of a 3d grid but a lot of times we'll stick a mini on top of like a d6 to indicate that it's a little bit higher or maybe change the color depending on its height so you can kind of have a relative idea of where things sit if you need it visually represented Mm -hmm. all right so there are always plenty of cool plots that unfold underneath the water i think the first most obvious one is just sunken treasure right like go get that treasure go get that bread yeah that that ship sank it sank with treasure go get it Right. Uh, now, down there also, though, there could be bodies. Uh, corpse retrieval is often a reason that uh, adventurers might be sent into the water. And, of course, it will go south in some manner. Maybe that person isn't actually dead. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're undead. Maybe we thought we were going to be here for about an hour, and we're here for several days. Uh, in more fantastical plots, you might need to literally calm an angry sea. Um, so there might be an actual like provocation or a reason deep in the depths that the ocean is angry. So you need to go down there and either kill whatever is causing the disruption in the weather and, and in the tides or appease it or figure out what's going on. I like the idea that you go down there to kill whatever it is, and then you find out that it's actually really angry because people on the surface are doing terrible things, and you're like, oh, sorry. Yeah, you know what? Why don't you give us some awesome water gear and magic items and stuff, and then we'll sort of like emerge from from the ocean and then go cause a coup. Yeah. Yeah, that's the better way to do it. <laughs> like, definitely don't just kill this one thing that's right in front of you and easy to deal with as opposed to fixing humanity overall. No, just this well, the one evil vizier, right? And now okay. we come out of the water and I'm, I've got my like chitin armor and we've all got tridents now for some reason. Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. <laughs> we'll walk into the throne room dripping seawater right. and we'll wreck face. Okay, great. <laughs> Uh, a good reason to travel to the deepest depths is to bury something for good, maybe an evil artifact. And of course, you're the only ones who are able to uh, take it to the trenches and make sure that no one ever finds it again. Yeah, and nothing that you take down there in the first act will ever have to be gone back down there to retrieve in the third act. <laughs> <laughs> it's more important that it stays buried than you come back alive. Uh-huh. Um, And then, of course, you might have uh, savage diplomacy, right? Emissaries from the underwater civilizations uh, might be making contact with you, the barbaric surface dwellers, uh, because you are doing something or because they are, um, you know, an envoy of goodwill or something like that. Mm -hmm. I actually like this as like a sort of a fun way to flip the script where it is the um, 
aquatic civilization that are, are the player characters are playing, right? So you are from Atlantis or the setting or whatever, and you are venturing out onto the surface as emissaries to sort of meet these strange air-breathing barbarians, and then you you just get this all of this dramatic irony about like what are these crazy people doing up here, right? So some pitfalls for going underwater. You often have a single point of failure in being able to stay down here. If someone dispel magics your water breathing, you just die. Mm-hmm. So this might make sense in fiction, but it can be make it a lot harder to spring like being underwater onto the party, like you know, sinking their boat. And now we're gonna have an adventure underwater. But if that just means that uh, a simple like counterspell becomes a, a save or die, you like nobody's gonna enjoy that. You also have a pitfall of never leaving the sub. You know, if you have some means of conveyance that is required for you to survive underwater, then you're probably never going to leave it willingly. This becomes an adventure on the submarine and less so about an underwater adventure. Right. Which can be fun in its own right, but that's a totally different thing. Right. Uh, You don't want to make the underwater ocean just a wet version of feudal times where now everything is chitin and coral, uh, but like the the kings and the plots and the viziers and everything are exactly the same down there. Don't tell me what I want. Oh, look, a a kelp surf. (laughs) I want want colorful coral feudal times. (laughs) All right. Uh, You also don't want to be punishing the party simply for existing. Over time, the disadvantages of being a surface dweller underwater become big frustrations. If you never get better at combat, if you can never, you know, as a rogue, use your sneak attack because you always have disadvantage, like, it's just painful to play. So you need to, over time, offer ways to mitigate those drawbacks so that eventually, like, the characters feel mastery of their environment or at least feel at home in their environment. Yeah, and I think ideally you end up more powerful underwater than you would have been had you not been underwater, right? You need to get something from going down there. Yeah, the cool thing about this too is if it's like an arc of a campaign where you're spending time underwater is like all of those things that you bring back to the surface that make your life so powerful and great underwater, those don't carry over so well. (laughs) You you don't have to worry about them creeping on their gear. Like Nobody cares about their magic (laughs) water-breathing masks. (laughs) That doesn't help you on the surface. And then be wary of uneven distribution of these handicaps. So like if you have one person who happens to be an aquatic race, then they're just functioning fine from the get-go. And that really throws off party balance if these drawbacks aren't mitigated very quickly. So I think it's better to have everyone sort of on a similar level if the party is going to be underwater for a long time. Like I might just be like, hey, no aquatic races because you all need to be fish out of water. Yeah, so... As we're kind of wrapping this up, I mean, we should talk a little bit about the underwater adventure that we played in my 5e Pirates game, because we ran right into that pitfall of everybody chose races that were tied to the sea, but not equally comfortable underwater. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like the the old third edition Stormrack book had like the Hadozi, which are like kind of orangutan people, uh, which are yeah, great. gliding monkeys. Yeah, they're like great for climbing the rigging of ships. Right, they're at home on ships, but they're screwed underwater. Um, so yeah, like Jim's have, blue dragonborn, yeah, no good. But the rest of us were aventi, like sea elves, right? Yeah, and, <laughs> and so it was all natural. So when you went underwater, it was like two people had a lousy time, and three people were at home, and and we had to like quickly fix that with some artifacts we threw at the very front of the uh, <laughs> of the temple that you were raiding. <laughs> Right. In the foyer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, from the last group of adventurers that died there. (laughs) Right. Yeah, of course. Anyway, so I think a lot of people tend to avoid going underwater just because it feels like it's going to be more difficult. But that difficulty, like the challenge of playing under there um, and making it seem like a, a fascinating new environment that you get to explore is what makes it interesting and challenging and fun. Mm hmm. Yeah, agreed. I think um, I think it's always a nice change of pace to like. My mind always feels like a little bit broader when I play underwater games for a mm-hmm. little bit because like sometimes you get so confined in the reality, like the freedom that's available by being underwater is just kind of like it's fun, you know. Yeah, you have to imagine everything that's happening because it's all different. You can't just be like, oh yeah, we're in a, we're in a village, whatever. Right. Exactly. Like I have not seen this village. 600 times before because this one has coral <laughs> living coral <laughs> all right do you hear that Ishan? that's the sound of the coral i bet you didn't know it barked 
but down here it does. It sounds more like a bell. <laughs> Barking bell coral. It chimes. It chimes uh, here on the hour, every hour. All right, let's move on to the Character Creation Forge. But before we do that, we'll talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sense Carne. That's Malice minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. And join the conversation on Discord. There's a link in the show notes. Total Party Thrill is brought to you this week by D&D Beyond. It is the official digital toolset and game companion for Dungeons and Dragons. You can use it to build characters, track campaigns, run adventures, and do so much more. There is also a lot of awesome free content like the D&D Basic Rules, articles from writers like James J. Heck, and videos from Todd Kenrick. You can do cool things like search for the underwater rules so that you know how to play an underwater game. You can look through all of the books and find all of the underwater encounters. You can look up all the spells that have the word water in their name. You can sort the monster manual by aquatic monsters (laughs) or by the ability to breathe water. It's great. Or swim speed. You're fine. So the team is always updating the site with new features, so improvements to the platform are always coming. So, if that sounds good, check it out at www.dndbeyond.com. So, this week in the Character Creation Forge, we are building Siren Song, an undersea fighter that enemies just can't resist. All right. So, what's the build? It is Undying Pact of the Blade Warlock 14, Glamour Bard 6. And our race, we will be an aquatic half-elf. You give up skill versatility, and you can breathe underwater and get a swim speed, which just mitigates pretty much all of those drawbacks that we talked about that'll do it so from bard you get third level spells including the charm and hold line of spells and hypnotic pattern you cannot build a siren without hypnotic pattern (laughs) (laughs) you get other musical abilities song of rest counter charm in case someone else is trying to be a siren and five inspirations per short rest of course you get jack of all trades um then you'll have The ability to perform for a minute and charm a creature for an hour. And then uh, your mental majesty will let you cast the command spell as a bonus action every round for a minute. And of course, one of the commands you can give is approach. And then you'll be able to spend your inspiration to give the entire party temporary HP and let them move, which is very effective underwater, especially if they are clumsy underwater, because they can still move some of their speed in order to like maneuver just a little bit more it sort of gets them back up to par right right or down to par at down know, to par whatever. yeah um and then from warlock we'll get six level spells and three spells per short rest uh which will be fifth level slots you get six invocations the ones that you want devil sight so you can see in the dark eldritch spear which makes your uh, eldritch blast have a range of 300 feet now In 5th edition, ranged attacks all automatically miss beyond the normal range of the weapon, which means even the longbow can only attack things 150 feet away. So you have an extra 150 feet of range versus anybody who doesn't have Eldritch Spear. Okay. (laughs) Eldritch Smite you're going to use when you smash people uh, with your weapons. And of course, you can use a greatsword because you have a swim speed. And then Thirsting Blade lets you attack twice. Then you have other options. If you don't want to be an aquatic half-elf, then at level 5, you can pick Gift of the Depths, which lets you breathe underwater and gives you a swim speed. Uh, you can take Grasp of Hadar, which uh, pulls people in with your Eldritch Blast, and then Beast Speech lets you be Aquaman. You'll also get the Spare the Dying Cantrip, and then Undead must make a saving throw in order to attack you. Lots of Undead down in the depths. I mean, Undead do not suffer at all under the depths, so None. it's good to go ahead and have a way to avoid them eating you. I mean, that's how the zombies go from continent to continent. They just walk along the bottom of the ocean. I saw Pirates of the Caribbean. The (laughs) skeletons can do it too. Uh, On a successful death save, once per day, you can gain HP, which of course means you will wake up. And at level 10, this may seem redundant, but it is not. You can now hold your breath indefinitely. That is different from being able to breathe water. You now can't be drowned in, let's say, acid or vacuum or wine. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-huh. You also don't require food, water, or sleep, and you will age more slowly. And then at 14, you can reattach body parts if you just hold them to the stump, and then once per short rest, you can heal yourself for quite a bit. 
That is truly nightmare fuel. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm a, I'm a sea anemone or what, a sea cucumber. Right. I'll chop off my arm and throw it at you and you chew it on it for a while and then I'll just put it back on. All right. So what do we have in terms of leveling order? Uh, I think we will do Warlock 5 so that you can either get um, Gift of the Depths. If you're not an aquatic half-elf, you can get third level spells. You've got Hypnotic Pattern. Then I would slot in Bard and then finish out Warlock. All right. Before we wrap up, we want to take a moment and thank our Patreon supporters. Your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. And don't forget, if you leave a five-star review on iTunes, it helps other people find the show, and we will read it on the air. So what do we have planned for next week's episode? We'll be talking about adversarial GMs. And in the Character Creation Forge? We're building the Troll Hunter. Those two have nothing to do with each other. Oh, no, adversarial GMs hunt trolls. Yes, that's it. (laughs) (laughs) That's it for episode 240 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. Is it that adversarial GMs hunt trolls or troll hunters hunt adversarial GMs? (laughs) All of the above? Look, you'll find out next week. (laughs) Once we figure it out sometime in the next week or two. Right. Are you looking for a great story? Do you love Star Wars? Do you like podcasts? If you said yes to any of these, check out the Redemption Podcast. Well, I have less in my head than you do normally, probably. You haven't met the crew I'm with. Pretty much everywhere we go, our life is in danger. Things didn't explode. That's pretty sneaky for us. That sounds horrible. Yes, please finish up whatever underhanded thing you're doing on the computer terminals at the Jedi Temple. Check out Redemption Podcast at www.redemptionpodcast.com.